Hey, movie fans, and welcome back to another episode of the Uncharted Media Podcast. This is episode 64, the final episode of the year, and coincidentally, of the decade. Man, I'm just having a hard time wrapping my brain around that, but it's kind of been an interesting year for movies. I'm not going to say it's been the best year for movies ever. Um, We'll get into it more. This will be our best and the worst of 2019. I am flying solo this week. It has been a hectic... This time of year is hectic all around, but I wanted to make sure that I got this episode out before the new year came in. So, I'm just riding solo. That's going to be fine. Um, Yeah, this year has been kind of interesting for movies. There, on paper, was a lot of big, huge movies that had the potential to really blow away the box office and from a financial standpoint this year absolutely killed um with disney alone crossing over 10 billion dollars in just um box office revenue but some of the bigger name projects didn't always deliver i'll say that however while some of the big budget movies may not have necessarily always excelled i feel like 2019 was the year of the art house independent movies as we have quite a few really excellent standouts um for just really well-made movies that may have flown under the radar whether they just didn't get the budget they um that they just didn't have the bigger budgets that other bigger names had or the broad four quadrant appeal of like an avengers endgame um yeah, there's a lot of good, quiet hits out there, as well as some big, bombastic movies. But we'll cover it all this week. Uh, but off the top, I wanted to talk about something. So at the beginning of this year, everyone always sets their New Year's resolutions. I went with an odd one of I wanted to see 50 movies that I had never seen before. So not necessarily movies in the theater, just movies that I had not seen before. So movies in the theater count. Uh, as well as movies that you could watch at home. So my goal was 50. I probably should have set the bar just a tad bit higher because as it stands right now, there's a few days left in the year, but as it stands right now, I'm currently sitting at 114. So I may have to reevaluate some estimates if I wanted to do this uh, challenge again for the next year, maybe up it to 75 or 100 again. We will have to see. Um... Not all the movies I watched were great this year. Some were truly awful, but some surprise hits snuck in there. Um, so as a whole, I had a really good year when it comes to movies, even if it wasn't necessarily on the big screen. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about different categories. I have best movies, worst movies, best moments, most disappointing movies, some underrated movies, and then some MVPs. So we're going to start off with the underrated movies. So yes, we have the big, huge, epic movies that came out this year, but we also have a lot of smaller movies that may have flown under your radar. So one that started really early in the year, I believe this came out in either January or February, that it was one of my favorite movies of the year when it came out um, at the beginning of the year, and still really holds up towards the tail end of the year that I feel like didn't really get the credit it deserved, was... WWE Studios is fighting with my family, yet WWE Studios is not normally the herald of excellent entertainment, both in-ring and theatrically lately. Um, their movies are terribly, normally pretty terrible, um, and a lot of the marketing for fighting with my family wasn't necessarily 
great. So I went in with some apprehension, but I was like, I'm interested enough. It's produced by The Rock, directed by Stephen Merchant. I'll, I'll give it a shot. And I was really pleasantly surprised, and it continued to be, as the year progressed, one of the most underrated movies that I saw. It was just a really enjoyable time. So Fighting With My Family essentially is the story, the real-life story, of former WWE wrestler Paige, who comes from a wrestling family in England. But the thing is, WWE really doesn't hire people from England that often. And also, it's incredibly hard to get signed by the WWE because both her and her brother are trying out for it, which, spoiler alert, she gets in, but he doesn't. So that kind of creates this whole new family dynamic. The comedy really works, the comedy of fish out of water, trying to get acclimated to a new situation that just happens to be professional wrestling. Um, but that's the beauty of the movie is I don't think you necessarily have to be a professional wrestling fan to appreciate a lot of the humor. Um, the characters are really great. Florence Pugh, who we'll talk about more later, absolutely carries the film as Paige. Um, my only real nitpicks about the movie um, come more from my wrestling fandom side of just nitpicking certain things of just like, um, knowing the situation around when Paige debuted or just like, that's not how events unfolded or like certain graphics or videos are just like, that's graphics from current era WWE that she debuted like five years ago, just super semantics. Um, but that aside, it was a really pleasantly enjoyable movie and I feel like it's slowly but surely getting more of a cult following of people that have seen it and for those that have seen it, have really, really enjoyed it, and I hope more people see it in the future and get give it the recognition that it deserves. Um, next up is a movie that is completely different, um, and it's the first time I've ever been to a movie that I was the only one in the theater. I've gotten close a couple times, but this was this was something different because it was so niche. But that being said, being by myself in the theater actually added to the tension and uncomfortableness of the film, and that is The Lighthouse, directed by um, Robert Eggers, who also did The Witch, or Vavitch, as we affectionately like to call it. So, this is a very, very creepy and unsettling film starring um, Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe, and that's it. It's just the two of them. They are two lighthouse keepers, uh, wikis, that are more or less tasked with looking over this lighthouse for about two weeks. But um, some events happen, and it seems like they're there for longer than that. But that's the thing, is this island that they're guarding makes them not think clearly. So they don't really know how long they've been there. The world around them starts to morph into this weird stuff. Uh, dreamlike state and it's so uncomfortable I was uncomfortable right off the bat um, it was shot in a 4 by 3 aspect ratio just like old VHS's so like the black bars are on the sides not over the top and bottom and it kind of like compresses the screen into this narrow view so you already feel a little claustrophobic seeing it in the theater just like it feels tight and uncomfortable and then the music in the background is really uncomfortable of like just beats that feel like a heartbeat in the background. Um, there'll be a siren from the lighthouse blaring in the background. And I swear it changed its pace. Like it would speed up or slow down over time, reflecting the character. 
and that could just be me. Like I felt like as I was watching the movie, I was losing my mind like the characters in the movie because the movie plays these little tricks on you. Like I, it was the most, one of the most uncomfortable experiences that I've ever had in a theater. But I mean that in the best possible way. Eggers really made this like sense of dread and not being able to tell what's real and what's fake in this world. And it really locks you into the story even more. And you're drawn in even more by Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe's performances. I mainly saw this because I'm a sucker for good horror. But also, Robert Pattinson is our new Batman. And while I've been a big defender of his, more or less since day one of, this guy's a great actor, I wanted to see him really take on a really meaty, dramatic role to see what kind of chops he'll be bringing to the table as Batman. And oh my gosh, if we get anything even close to what we got from him in the lighthouse, Batman is going to go in a really great and interesting new direction performance-wise because both him and Defoe just absolutely bring it. You don't trust either one of them, um, but because they're the only ones there, you're kind of more latched onto them and just the madness ensues and it's a descent of insanity, basically, of things just getting weirder and wackier and just absolutely insane and the final frame of the movie just leave you scratching your head going what did i just watch but in the best possible way and sometimes when you go to the movies you see just the sameness of things of hero saves the day from the bad guy etc etc or guy gets the girl in the end lighthouse completely shook that up it was a completely different experience from anything that i'd seen in a theater in a long time and it was just I don't know what to make of it, and I don't think watching it at home will really do it justice. That being said, I'm good not seeing it again for a while, and that's not because it's a bad movie. I really think it's supremely underrated, and it was excellent, but it made me so uncomfortable. I'm just like, I'm good for a little bit. I don't need to see this again. It's not excessively violent or anything. It's just it crawls under your skin, and it stays there for the rest of the runtime. I'm just like, okay, can we can we speed this up so I can get out of here? Because this is really making me uneasy. Um, now, flipping back to more of the lighthearted, I have one that a lot of people did not like this one. The critics really bash this one, but I don't quite get it because, it to me, it proved more of what I already knew, which is Dave Bautista is quite a funny guy, and we need to give him more comedic roles, and that's Stuber. I did not go into Stuber with really high expectations, not low expectations, but I was just kind of expecting a run-of-the-mill comedy. Um, but I was very pleasantly surprised by Stuber. I laughed out loud quite hard, and then when I rewatched um, Stuber when it came on Blu-ray, I still laugh, which that's to me is the sign of a good comedy is, yes, you got the initial laugh when you first saw it, but can you laugh again upon rewatches? And yeah, sure enough, I was still laughing at Stuber. There's quite a few really good laughs um Kumail Nanjiani and Dave Bautista had fantastic chemistry it was very entertaining I will highly recommend it as one of the more undersung um comedies of the year I know a lot of people it's not for everybody but I really really enjoyed it I know some people weren't too ecstatic with the film and the humor may not be for everybody but I quite enjoyed Stuber, and I would like to see more of Dave Bautista in comedic roles, or just more roles in general, because I think he's a phenomenal actor. So, uh, next up is one Shia LaBeouf. So, 
if you haven't been paying attention, and it's super easy to miss because he's been sticking to more quiet, low-budget stuff, Shia LaBeouf has secretly been putting in some excellent work over the past few years, and 2019 is no different as he had not one, but two extremely underrated movies that I feel like we need to bring more attention to. Um, Honey Boy, but more importantly, Peanut Butter Falcon. I'll, I'll talk about Honey Boy first. So Honey Boy is essentially a movie written by Shia LaBeouf about his own upbringing, more or less. Um, so this was a movie that he was requ- like required by court-ordered law to write while he was in rehab, more or less as a form of therapy. And it shows as he is so brutally honest with himself about um, who his father was to him um, and therefore why he ended up the way he is. It feels like he is trying to search for answers in the film as Shia LaBeouf himself is playing his own father. So when his dad playing him playing his dad is yelling at the young actor playing a younger version of Shia LaBeouf named something different, it almost feels like Shia is yelling at himself, and it's super weird on multiple levels, but the performances are excellent, and it was unlike a lot of movies that I saw this year, and it was almost cathartic of just like, all right, there's a journey here, there's a growth that this character, and by extension, this person is trying to go through, and it's easy to bag on Shia LaBeouf, but I feel like he is trying to turn things around, and Honey Boy kind of explains, not justifies by any stretch of the imagination, some of the decisions that Shia LaBeouf has made in his life are fully on him. Um, but it explains, but doesn't justify things that have happened to him, and by extension, what he does to others. Um, I was very pleasantly surprised by Honey Boy when I finally was able to track it down. It's extremely hard to find, um, but it was really really well done in all honesty i can see shia LaBeouf possibly getting a nomination for his work as his father in honey boy it was really really good that was more of the dramatic and then for the flip side of it the dramatic but yet comedic his role in peanut butter falcon which was outstanding so i saw the trailer for peanut butter falcon more or less by accident it was just kind of in a YouTube recommendation, it was just like, Peanut Butter Falcon. That's a weird name for a movie. And I clicked it. And after about two and a half minutes, I was just like, yep, I'm going to need to see this movie. This seems like the most charming movie of the year. And sure enough, it's the most charming movie of the year. So what it is is a new actor named Zach Gottsagen, who um, was born with Down syndrome, um, plays a character with Down syndrome. And... It's a character who more or less wants to go down to Florida to go to this professional wrestling school because he wants to be a professional wrestler. So he escapes his um, old folks' home that he lives in so he can get the assisted care that he needs. He escapes and tries to make his way down to Florida, but he runs into Shia LaBeouf's character who is also trying to escape the law for um, various things. He's not a bad person, but he's just had some run-ins with the law. So the two of them are trying to make their way down to Florida while... um, they're trying to escape Zach's caretaker, played by Dakota Johnson, and they all more or less come together and try and make Zach's life better. And Zach is the best thing about this movie. Um, so the story with Peanut Butter Falcon was these filmmakers um, met Zach at a camp, and he asked um, if he could be in a movie, and they're like, well, there's not a whole lot of actors with Down syndrome that are in movies, and that just didn't really click for him. And he's right. It just doesn't really make sense. Um, they're people too. And so they're just like, you know what? 
we're going to make a movie and we're going to have you as the star. And their work paid off because Zach just seems to be a natural on the screen. He's just his charming personality. You feel for this kid almost right off the bat and you're just like, yeah, we want to help you. We want we want you to be a wrestler too. He's charming. He's endearing. Um, like the best line from the whole movie is just like Shia LaBeouf talking to him. He's just like, I'm in charge. Rule number one, you do what I say. Two, you keep up. All right. So he starts walking away. What's rule number one? Party. No, not party. Um, they just have this fun chemistry. Zach's heart is made of gold and Shia LaBeouf grows. His character grows as a result of it. It's, it was the, since it came up before Honey Boy, it was the role that started to shift my opinion of Shia LaBeouf as an actor. I always really liked him as an actor, but I saw something different in him in this performance. I was just like, that was really, really good. He was really trying for this. It was a very pleasantly, surprisingly good movie that actually has definitely picked up some steam and some traction with fans. Of It was a, actually did pretty well at the box office, but didn't get as much at the box office as I feel like it deserves. And Peanut Butter Falcon is one of the most charming and endearing movies that you will see all of 2019. So last but not least for underrated movies, um, this year... How do I put this? Horror movies sucked in 2019, in all honesty. Yes, you had movies like Midsommar, which was just weird. Ari Aster is kind of an interesting director as it stands already. Um, but horror wasn't particularly strong. You had some really weak entries like Annabelle Comes Home or Curse of La Llorona. But we had one that I... Had heard good things about, and I saw it rather recently on um, Blu-ray. But that is scary stories to tell in the dark. I really, really like this movie. So, um, scary stories to tell in the dark is absolutely based on those um, children's books that I I definitely read and reread those a lot as a kid, and that was even before I was into horror. But I was just into reading, so I read those a lot, and I always remember what those books are most known for is their absolutely horrifying artwork of just the black and white images that were in those books really translate well into this story. So basically, it's these kids that find this book that brings stories that are in the book to life. So basically, the stories that you've read in Scary Stories to, come to, uh, scary stories to Tell in the Dark come to life surrounding one overarching narrative. It's not like Trick or Treat, though, where it's five separate stories that are interwoven. It's one narrative with kind of like side missions that add to the main story to go into video game terminology. Um, but it was surprisingly effective and also at times pretty scary for a quote unquote kids movie. It was a happy medium. I described it as a happy medium of a mixture of it, goosebumps and trick or treat of there's definitely some good scares in there mixed with some, um, interwoven narratives, but still st focused around kids. So it's not as intense as it, but it's not as lighthearted as Goosebumps. It's somewhere. It's in the middle. As um, there's definitely some scares, and I'll talk about um, one of those later in the best moments of the year. But there was it was surprisingly good. Great characters. Um, surprisingly good young actors that I wasn't really familiar with, but I'll be. As Palpatine said, be watching the Yurkers with very with great interest, uh, because they did a 
quite a good job um, with some great scares, excellent movie, music. It just felt like a classic Halloween movie in the vein of like a monster house of I could see myself making this a tradition every year to watch around Halloween time because it was just a fun Halloween related movie. So as much as those are some great underrated movies, we've got to talk about some of the disappointments because unfortunately in 2019, there's quite a few high profile movies that on paper should have been great. But for one reason or another, at least to me, we're not. Now, by no means are these the worst movies of the year. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But these are movies that I had high hopes for. But for one reason or another, I just didn't think they delivered on. Um, so first up is one that is really hard for me to talk about because my expectations are so high because I had previous love and connection to the first one in this series. And that is The Lego Movie 2. I absolutely adore the first Lego movie. I have very fond memories of seeing it in the theater with Heather. Um, she was like, she called dibs on taking me to see it, and I had, I was kind of on the fence. Just like, it's a Lego movie. The trailers didn't seem that great, but also, how do you make a movie about Legos? And we both ended up loving the Lego movie to the point that I saw it like three or four times in theaters. It was great. I kept dragging more and more people to see it. Um, and then they followed up with the great Lego movie, uh, Lego Batman movie, which I put that on par with the Lego movie. I really, really enjoyed the Lego Batman movie. And then while I own Lego Ninjago, I have not seen it, but I heard that was quite good. It's not as good as the other two. So my expectations were pretty high for Lego movie too. I was expecting the line to keep going of, all right, these are pretty good movies. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. I don't think I laughed at all in Lego Movie 2. Something about it, just the charm was missing. Whether it was the lackluster plot, um, the la it felt like there was a lack of heart. Like, Lego Movie 1 and even Lego Batman had this heart to it around all the goofiness and wackiness. Uh, this just felt stupid. Dale, for lack of a better term, nothing really clicked with me with it, um, whether it was the new characters that just didn't really do it, or it was jokes that we'd already seen at this point, it just lacked the imagination and the creativity of the first one. Is it a bad movie? No, I'm sure there's lots of kids out there that will like it, it's, it's a fine, safe movie, but as a continuation of the legacy that Lego Movie and Lego Batman set up... I was really disappointed. I was expecting better. Um, there was a lot of possibilities out there. It just wasn't nearly as interesting or as engaging as that first Lego movie, and I was really disappointed by that. Um, another one that I really had a strong connection to the first one, so I had high hopes for the second one because it was actually by the same exact director was Happy Death Day to You or just Happy Death Day 2. I thoroughly enjoy the first Happy Death Day. So Happy Death Day is essentially Groundhog's Day meets Friday the 13th of a girl keeps dying by a killer and she has to figure out who the killer is again and again and again. Um, unfortunately... As what as much cool stuff was set up in the trailers and even in early on in the film, it really doesn't deliver on that fact. It's a lot of, again, like Lego Movie 2, staleness. Like, the emotion isn't there. The heart just wasn't there compared to the first time around. And there's some 
interesting ideas that are set up that are just really not delivered on. There's, um, if I remember correctly, without going into details, there's something that happens at the very beginning that kind of implies some like big thing with time travel of like, oh, that would be really cool if like he, if this, that, or the other thing. But the thing that happens in the opening scene is not connected at all to the rest of the movie. It doesn't tie back in. It almost felt like it was part of the plot for the third movie that will never happen now because the second one didn't do well. It was weird. It was disjointed. It didn't... The logic didn't make sense. Unlike the first one, it was stuck to the rules pretty plainly and simply, whereas this one over-explained and under-explained at the same time. It made it really, really complicated. That just It wasn't nearly there like the first one was, which disappointed me because the first Happy Death Day was a breath of fresh air of this was really charming and entertaining. Jessica Roth was a great lead. The premise was interesting. The humor was there. And unfortunately, Jessica Roth was still a great lead, but just this time not nearly as good of a movie, and that was so disappointing. Um... I can't say I'm surprised about this next one, but I'm still disappointed all the same. And again, I feel like it's a trend here, but it's our third sequel in a row, Godzilla King of the Monsters. So I like, but don't love, Gareth Edwards' Godzilla from 2014. I think it's fine. It's got, definitely has some problems. Not nearly got enough Godzilla. You killed off um, Heisenberg way too soon. But... At the end of the day, I could still at least have fun with it. Um, so the main criticisms for Godzilla was not enough Godzilla, uh, too much focus on human characters. So that Mike uh, Mike Doherty, who directed this movie, who normally I like as a director, he did Trick or Treat, which is one of my favorite Halloween-themed movies. I was like, all right, Michael Doherty is doing this movie. Uh, we're going to have more monsters this time around. Should be great. Well, we got, we did get more monster fights. I will give it that. But we also had like three times as many characters that are not nearly as interesting. I actually missed Aaron Taylor Johnson's character from the first one. And I didn't even like Aaron Taylor Johnson's character in the first one. But he's a whole lot more interesting than a lot of the characters we had in this one. Uh, I honestly don't even remember the characters' names. I just remember the actors' names. Like, that guy from Friday Night Lights, or Eleven from Stranger Things, or Fair for Amiga, or that angry guy from Game of Thrones. I don't remember characters' names. I just remember their presence there, and we still continue to focus on the human characters instead of Godzilla. I know a lot of people that are like classic Godzilla fans like it, and that's awesome. The Godzilla fights were great. Um, when you could see them, I still think like lightning and the rain. I get that it's part of Ghidorah's mo. But it cluttered up some of the action scenes to me. Um, yeah, some of the action was more clear to see this time. And there was more of it. So I appreciated that. But the human character was just so uninteresting and so dull that it really took me out of it. And we spent so much time with the human characters. Also, spoiler, mild spoiler alert. Again, they killed off the one interesting character in the whole movie. There is a character that is back from the first film, that I actually liked in both the first film and the second film, but they kill off this character again. I'm just like, do all the interesting characters die in these Godzilla movies? They Do these actors just not want to come back for future roles? 
I don't know what it is, but Godzilla King of the Monsters just did not click with me. It wasn't out and out bad, like some movies we'll talk about later. But it was so disappointed, to say the least. Um, I talked about horror earlier, which on paper there should have been some great horror movies. And this is one that I was super excited for, the premise alone. Brightburn. So Brightburn more or less was, um, you know, the story of Superman, of... Young Clark Kent crashes to Earth and is adopted by the Kents and raised in Smallville. Well, what if when Clark Kent lands on Earth, he's adopted by some other family in more or less the exact situation, but instead of growing up to be good, the kid grows up to be evil. That's the premise of Brightburn. And it's a great premise on paper. The execution, unfortunately, does not work. Um, And I say that because... I was kind of, maybe it was me having different assumptions, but given that that premise is Superman, like an alternate version of Superman where he turns evil, they don't really lean into that storytelling element super strong. There's like hints of, this could be a metaphor for Superman, but then they drop it really quick. It's almost like they're afraid of like, okay, how far can we push this before we get hit with a copyright claim? Um, and we have to change things up. But also, maybe this is just me assuming things. Um, I kind of assumed that when this kid turns evil, it would be like a gradual turn to evil, like a heel turn in wrestling. Um, but no, this kid's almost kind of like a brat from the get-go of he just goes from bad to really, really extremely bad, which I would be much more interested in like a, while I wasn't a huge fan of Joker, but like a Joker style of like a descent into evil type of thing. This kid was almost a rotten apple from the get-go, and the characters in this are so incredibly stupid. Like, the mom that adopts this kid is just like, no, I love this child, I love this child. This kid just killed three people, and you're turning just a completely blind eye to it, which, when characters are purposely stupid, like, they write them as not really realistic, it really takes me out of movies because it's just like, no, People wouldn't act or respond that way in a given situation. I kept finding myself in that way so much with Brightburn of, no, no one would act this way. No one would respond in that manner. But whatever. Okay, sure. Um, sure. Some of the deaths in a horror movie, you always, you want in a good horror movie, there to be at least some gratifying kills. There's at least some of those of some really... Oh, wow, they went there. Okay, that was that was really cool. But when you have a name like James Gunn attached to it, he didn't direct it, but he was producer on it. You expect better, and it really just wasn't. So last up for most disappointing movies, I have one that not a lot of people are going to care about because it really flew under the radar, and now it's extremely hard to find, even more so. Um, it's a movie called The Dead Don't Die. Um, this is only on my list, mainly because... When I saw the trailers, I busted a gut laughing so hard. It sounded like um, a new-ish version of The Walking Dead meets Zombieland, almost. Um, So basically, it's this quiet town, and all of a sudden, zombies come back to life. And whatever the zombies were doing while they were alive, they go back to doing as zombies. And the trailer just seemed really, really funny. It had an all-star cast of Adam Driver, Bill Murray, Selena Gomez, um, uh, what Tilda Swinton, 
a lot of really big name people and I watched it and I was maybe I was expecting something different but it really was not nearly as funny as I was hoping or expecting it to be and I was really disappointed by it like there's a couple good liners but Everyone seems to be like sleepwalking through this movie, just completely uninterested. And also, they try and like break the fourth wall a couple times with humor, and it doesn't really work because it's inconsistent with its fourth wall breaking of just like, wait, do the people in this movie know it's a movie or do they not? And when you don't set up the rules of your movie early enough, it takes me out of it, just like when characters don't interact like actual human beings. When you don't really follow the own rules that you set up of just like, okay, this is what the movie is, this is what it isn't, it makes it jarring and doesn't flow as seamlessly as it should. Um, but that's just me. Not a lot of people saw it by The Dead Don't Die. It wasn't in theaters very long. It was more or less just like a straight-to-DVD almost, which is weird considering how many big names are attached to it. But I still sought it out and... Unfortunately, I was very disappointed that I did at the end of the day. Um, so, switching back to positives, we'll now talk about the best moments of the year. The moments that made me happy to be a movie fan. Um, and obviously, there's some big ones from one movie in particular, but we'll, we'll save that for last. Um, one that I saw fairly recently is from Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. So... I was enjoying the movie up until a certain point, but there was a moment that I was just like, oh, wow, this is something really different. This is something kind of special almost um, because it actually scared me. Movies don't typically scare me just because I can't turn my brain off of just like, All right, I've seen so many horror movies now. This this will happen, this will happen, this will happen. And if it's done well, awesome. If it's done poorly, I can make fun of it later. Um, but there's one scene that actually was really creepy and unsettling. So what it is is um, there's always that jerk um jerk jock in every single movie um so this jock is like going uh like running errands or something late at night and he has to drive through the cornfield and he passes his scarecrow that he's more or less been beating up for the whole movie because jerk jock um so he beats up the scarecrow for a little bit more or less taking out some of his drunk frustration and then he starts walking away and the scarecrow's no longer on the stilts because naturally the scarecrow is alive because horror movie. Um, but the scene, the rest of the scene plays out and it really builds this really creepy and un and just interesting tension of, yeah, you know, as a horror fan that this scarecrow is going to come eventually. You just don't know where or when. So then like smash cut to him, the, the scarecrow more or less being right in front of this kid's face. But the way it was shot, you expect it to still be further off. But no, he's right there. And so the chase begins, and the music's excellent. The editing and the cinematography is excellent in that scene. But it doesn't take a turn that I thought. I thought it would just be like a quick slasher of, all right, Scarecrow kills um, the kid. End of story. No. So the kid tries to stab the Scarecrow with the Scarecrow's own pitchfork to scare it off. Okay, sure. Kid's at least defending himself. Scarecrow picks up the um, pitchfork from inside himself, takes it out, stabs the kid with it. She's like, all right, that's got to be the end of the scene. No, the kid walks away just fine, actually. So I was like, wait, that's a weird way to do the scene. But as the kid's running away, from where he got stabbed, 
spoiler alert, because this is a really cool scene, um, all this, from where he got stabbed, all this hay starts coming out of him. Like, instead of blood coming out of him, it's hay. So he's, like, trying to rip the hay out of him. It's just like, what what's going on? And more and more hay is coming out, not just from the stab wounds, but from him himself. He's becoming a living scarecrow. And it's like a slow process of a human slowly turning into a scarecrow. It doesn't sound scary, but having, like, hay protrude out of his face, out of his stomach, out of his appendages, actually made me unnerved and creeped out. I was like, then they cut to some other scene, and I'm just sitting there for the next couple minutes going, what just happened? Holy crap, I was not expecting the movie to get that intense. And the rest of the scares actually live up to that, but that was like one of the major scares of just, whoa, I did not expect that. That was really intense, but also... Really, really well done. Um, another horror movie moment that I really enjoyed from this year. I wasn't a huge fan of the movie as a whole, but the ending was great. Of a movie called Ready or Not. So, Ready or Not is essentially this girl marries into this really, really wealthy um, family that has acquired their wealth through gaming of like different board games, and they've made a whole empire of it. Kind of like the Parker Brothers, almost. Um, so, they have this weird ritual that you draw a card, a randomly selected card, and that's the game you have to play that night. And then once you've played that game, you're a member of the family. So the girl draws hide-and-seek. No big deal. The problem is hide-and-seek is the one bad card in the entire lot. Because if you draw hide-and-seek, you have to hide from the family while they try and kill you. And the only way to win is stay hidden until dawn. And if they find you, they'll kill you and sacrifice you to this weird god that more or less gave them their riches and wealth so if they don't complete the sacrifice the family will explode from the inside out um it sounds hokey and ridiculous and it kind of is it's a horror comedy the comedy doesn't super work for me but um so the uh, main girl samara weaving's character has more or less survived up until the very ends so they finally catch her, and they're about to sacrifice her, but she survives just a little bit longer until dawn hits. She has finally survived. She's made it, and all of a sudden, nobody's dead. So the family's looking around going, oh, um, have we just been believing in some ancient hokey religion, Han Solo-like, um, for no real reason, and this whole thing was made up? There's this, like, three, two or three minutes of just, like, well, um, that was awkward. Sorry, we tried to kill you. And then one of the family members explode like something you just stuck in the microwave. It was real, but also at the same time, really, really gratifying to see such horrible people, but explode in such a hilarious manner, like ridiculously over the top explosion, like filling up a water balloon and seeing it just explode with red fluid everywhere and it's a little bit surely everyone explodes and the girl that's surviving is just laughing the whole time going well now i don't have to deal with this family anymore um at least it was a nice wedding so it's over the top ridiculous the movie i wasn't a huge fan of the movie but the ending was at least entertainingly hilariously over the top and it was just nuts. Um, now, another movie that I wasn't super enamored with the whole movie, but had at least one standout scene, 
was The Lion King. Now, I love the original Lion King. It's one of the movies that I absolutely grew up on. It's one of Heather's favorite movies. It's one of my favorite Disney movies. So my expectations were really, really high. Um, I, they were also really high because it was directed by John Favreau, who did the live-action Jungle Book, which I still think is my favorite of the Disney live-action remakes so far. And he's after the fact, but he's absolutely crushing it with The Mandalorian. So... I was super excited for Lion King. The trailer seemed amazing. The visuals looked incredible. Unfortunately, a lot of the film kind of fell flat for me of the character, like the voice acting almost felt like they were sleepwalking through it. The emotions just weren't there, but also because it's not animated in a traditional sense, people can't really emote as well as they could in like a hand-drawn animation or even like a CGI film because... They're animals. Animals don't normally just, like, open their eyes super, super wide or have, like, human emotions. So when scenes call for emotions, it doesn't connect as well. It It's this weird sensation. However, there's one scene that doesn't rely on human emotion, and that's the opening scene. The classic, classic Lion King scene of the sun rising. Yeah, that, uh, you know, in that immediate first second, that first note... If that note is not right, then the whole movie goes downhill. They nailed the opening song, but just the visuals of seeing a live-action opening to one of the greatest opening scenes in movie history come to life was just phenomenal. The visuals were gorgeous. The music was great. It was just like, this. This is a quote-unquote live-action Lion King. I love it. Unfortunately, the rest of the movie... Didn't quite deliver to the level of the opening scene, but that opening scene was just incredible. Like, I can't wait to, for this movie to be on Disney Plus on 4K just so I could see that opening shot over and over again because it was so well done. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, the rest of the movie couldn't live up to it. But hey, we got the opening. Now, a movie that I liked more of the entire thing but had one standout scene for sure was john wick 3 parabellum now i've really enjoyed the john wick franchise um i don't think three is my favorite but it establishes more of the world and i had a really good time with it but there's a scene when more or less all the people around john and the hotel have turned on john and the hotel so they send more or less their entire army to fight him so um, the owner of the hotel is just like, all right, we got plenty of weapons. We'll be fine. So John like starts to load up for one last one man versus an army fight. And he's going out and you understand now why it's called John Wick three Parabellum, because there's this great line by, um, oh, I'm blanking on his name. He's in Pirates of the Caribbean and has been in all the John Wick's movie, John Wick's movies, some Ian something. Um, it, Something like, if you want peace, parabellum, which means prepare for war. And the following scene and scenes is just utter chaos and, for lack of a better term, war. Because up until this point, most of the time, John Wick has been fighting either hand-to-hand or with, like, handguns or knives uh, to show his prowess. This one, he has to rely on, like, heavy-duty weapons. So it was kind of cool to see, for most of the John Wick movies, if he'll shoot a bad guy, they'll go down. Or, like, a headshot, they'll go down. Whereas this time, it was kind of cool to see him shoot 
at people in heavy armor and one shot wasn't doing it. Like you actually started to feel nervous for John Wick because, oh, he's giving them headshots, but it's just not doing it. He's got to actually shoot a few more times and rely on heavier weapons. Plus the green tinting calling back to Matrix was a nice touch. The whole hotel fight was great. The ending of John Wick 3 also was wonderful because it sets up all the John Wick movies, except for the first one, because I don't think they expected a sequel. All the ends of the John Wick movies set up a really interesting direction for the next film. And this one really makes me excited for John Wick 4. Even if it is coming the same day as Matrix 4, which should be very interesting head-to-head if that stays. The day of Keanu it shall be. Um, but the rest of the year is just like, Parabellum, prepare for war. That's a great phrase. That's something you need to cry into battle. Um, so, last but not least, we have some comic book movies, obviously. Um, so, I wasn't a huge fan of Spider-Man Far From Home. I thought it was it was fine. I don't like it nearly as much as Spider-Man Homecoming, but that's primarily because Homecoming is like my favorite Spider-Man movie we've gotten so far. But... There was a moment that I jokingly said might happen or I would like to happen about two or three weeks before the movie came out. And sure enough, I was right. So I remember on this podcast, like two or three weeks before the movie came out, um, there's a moment that I'll talk about here in a little bit. I was just like, I cheered my butt off for that. But the only moment that could cheer, make me cheer louder than that would be if J.K. Simmons somehow returned as J. Jonah Jameson in Spider-Man Far From Home. Well, I may have been psychic because, sure enough, spoiler alert, the end credits for Far From Home, Mysterio reveals Peter Parker's identity to the world via the Daily Bugle broadcast brought to you by J. Jonah Jameson himself, played by J.K. Simmons. I lost my mind because you don't... Marvel doesn't typically bring back other actors um, from other universes. Like Hugh Jackman, as much as we want him to, Hugh Jackman's not coming back as Wolverine. And J. Jonah Jameson hasn't been seen since Spider-Man 3 in 2007. It had been 12 years since we had seen J. Jonah Jameson. And the last time we saw him was J.K. Simmons. But J.K. Simmons had continued to voice J. Jonah in animated stuff and video games and whatever else. Because he's awesome. He's the perfect J. Jonah. But he was just so perfect that I didn't think they'd ever... I don't know. I didn't think they'd recast him, but I just didn't think they'd also show J. Jonah. Because there was really no mention of J. Jonah in these um, MCU Spider-Man movies. So when he showed up, it's just this fantastic surprise. And also, I've said before, J.K. Simmons is the one of the greatest movie casting choices of all time as J. Jonah Jameson. So... I was just, it's so great to see him again of like, oh, that's, that's it. And the fact that I just, it was something I officially on the record said I wanted to see right before the movie came out and it sure enough happened, just made it that much more gratifying for me, but not quite as gratifying as some of the greatest moments from Avengers Endgame, because of course, when talking about the best movie moments of 2019, we have to talk about Endgame. Um, there's so many that I have to talk about. Um, Sam getting the shield from Cap at the end. That, that got me so hard. That was, that was a moment I loved. Um, 
But the two major ones, of course, is Cap lifting and wielding Mjolnir. It's a moment that they has been teasing us with for years, ever since Age of Ultron, and you moved it a little bit, and people are like, well, he wasn't worthy there. No, 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 no. He purposely didn't lift up the hammer because you're either, you can't move it a little bit. You're either able to lift it or you're not. So he was able to lift it then too. But seeing Cap lift the hammer, I remember in the theater, everyone losing their minds. As soon as that hammer started to lift a little bit, I was just like, oh, it's finally going to Cap. It's finally going to Cap. Because I had a list of things that I want to see when end, in Endgame in order for it to be good. Because that's so selfish of me as a fan. It's like, I need to see Cap lift the shield. I need to hear Assemble. And there's something else that did, in fact, happen. Um, but he lifted this hammer, which is something that I've been saying I've needed forever. And it happened. But the way that they pulled it off was just perfect. Building the tension... Cap finally getting the upper hand before being squashed by Thanos. And you're just like, well, if Captain America with the hammer of Thor can't even beat Thanos, what hope do we have? Which, honorable mention for best moment, is my favorite shot in the whole movie, is not the biggest symbol shot. It is actually when Cap is standing on the hill all by himself. He's the only one in the ray of sunshine with all of Thanos' army looking down on him. I just think that's a gorgeous shot and a perfect representation for who Captain America is. Um, stands up to face Thanos' army all by himself, even if he's the only one doing it, because that's who Captain America is. And then the best moment of the whole movie, you just hear Cap, uh, you just hear Sam go, Cap, Cap, can you hear me? It's Sam on your left. And you just see Doctor Strange's portal open and you see three silhouettes and you're just like, there's that moment of hesitation going, who, who is, <gasps> that's Black Panther, Black Panther's alive! Because when Sam called over the headset, I was just like, wait, that's Sam's voice. But I, I wasn't thinking at the moment, I was just like, Sam was one of the ones that was dusted. Oh yeah, Black Panther was one of the ones that, <gasps> they're all back they're alive and you see falcon fly through on his left this time and all the portals open up and alan Silvestri's music is just picture perfect everyone uh coming in for reinforcements whether it's the guardians of the galaxy spider-man coming back which got a huge pop from my audience um which that whole basically from black panther opening coming through to um basically Thanos being snapped, was not quiet. The whole theater cheered and screamed. I may or may not have lost my voice. It was just one of the coolest theater experiences I have ever had of seeing wave after wave of everyone coming back, but everyone in the theater being invested in these characters that have, they've been watching for close to a decade cheering and celebrating the return of almost at this point old friends um everyone coming back to kick the bad guys but one last time and everyone was getting super excited super excited and i remember trying to quiet the people around me because i know they're zooming in on the shot and cap's like avengers and everyone's still cheering and cheering i'm just like are they gonna be quiet is he finally gonna say it assemble and everyone like burst into one of the loudest cheers I have ever heard in a theater, except for maybe when Cap lifted the hammer. 
It was a madhouse. That is a theater-going experience at the best, at its best. It was just amazing. I wish you would have screamed it while lifting the hammer, but if you did that, I guess that more or less would have made the scene all about him, which isn't what Cap does. And it was seeing all of them charge into battle. It was the best moment of 2019, and it's not a theater moment that's going to be topped anytime soon. Um, it was just, yeah. So, um, that'll transition us. I'll go MVPs, uh, then worst movies, and we'll finish with the best movies. So, MVPs, I've got two. I've got one that's more understated of honorable mention MVP because they were quietly going under the radar but having a really, really good year, and they're one that you guys should really be keeping an eye out for going forward. And that's Florence Pugh as she had two really good performances. Um, one movie that I liked, one movie that I was kind of eh about. She was Paige in Fighting With My Family, as I talked about earlier, but she was also in a movie called Midsommar, which is a really, 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 really weird, bizarre horror movie that I saw that was very interesting, to say the least. Uh, but her performance in both of those were excellent. She's had a really, really good year. But I also say keep an eye on her because... She's playing, quote-unquote, Black Widow's sister. I don't know if she'll be, like, sister-sister. She's playing Black Widow's sister in the upcoming Black Widow movie, and I think that's going to be her really big breakout role for the mainstream audience. Um, she, she's also, I believe, in Little Women, which supposedly is getting really, really good reviews. Florence Pugh has had a really good year, but not quite as good of a year as our main MVP, the extraordinary, the breathtaking himself. Whoa. Keanu Reeves. 2019 has been the year of the Keanu-sans. The revival of Keanu Reeves has reached its apex in 2019. As he's been in several high-profile roles. We talked, of course, talked about John Wick 3. But also, um, as one of the standout new characters of Toy Story 4, Duke Kaboom, Canada's greatest stuntman. But also, um, getting a hilarious over-the-top cameo role in... The Netflix comedy Always Be My Maybe um, stole headlines at E3 with his Cyberpunk 2077, uh, I believe that's the name, um, his upcoming role in that, all the memes that he's been in. 2019 was really Keanu's year in terms of how much stuff that he was in, but also how much quality stuff he was in, and that will, I'm sure, continue Next year with Bill and Ted's, fingers crossed, that'll be great. It seems like Keanu has found new life in the mainstream. I'm happy for him. He seems like a good dude who may not always be the best actor, but he seems to be finding his niche of what he's really, really good at. He's a smart guy, seems like a really cool guy. So I'm happy to give the MVP of 2019 to Keanu Reeves. Now we got to finish with some negatives before we bounce back with some positives. Worst movies of the year. Thankfully, I only have two because, by and large, this movie year has not been awful, but it's just kind of been eh. That's why there's more disappointing than out-and-out bads. But there's two awful, awful movies this year. First of all, Men in Black International. I almost put this on the most disappointing list because I did have very high hopes for this movie, but I'll put it on the worst just because of how boring, unoriginal, utterly forgetful this movie is. Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson have phenomenal chemistry. We saw that in Thor Ragnarok. They tried their best in this movie, but they were given absolutely nothing to work with. And also, 
if I can guess your movie's plot twist by your very first teaser trailer that comes out months before your movie, you done goofed, Sony. I guessed your plot twist a mile away of who was the mole in MIB. That's not a good thing, guys. It was so boring and unimaginative and does not live up to the reputation that is Men in Black. The movie should have and could have been so much better, but you severely disappointed us. It's so uninteresting and utterly forgettable. And the movie bombed and had every right to do so. But it is not the biggest movie um, flop of the year in terms of box office or creative vision. That movie solely goes to uh, David Arbor's Hellboy. Good lord, this movie. I was on the fence for a lot of, of this year going, what's the worst movie of the year? Then I saw Hellboy, and it made it obvious what the worst movie of the year is. Oh my gosh, it has been a long time since I've actually turned a movie off before finishing. Normally I can tough it out. Hellboy. Oh my goodness. I remember um, texting Josh, who was a big proponent of this movie for a long time, going, Hellboy's going to be great. And I was always a little bit more apprehensive. I actually said that this movie would flop, but I didn't think it'd be this bad. I texted him because he had already seen it. He's just like, dude, I didn't finish it. It is so bad. The writing is so bad. The CGI, just atrocious. I don't, it's been a while since I've seen CGI this bad. The action, uninspiring. It is, it is truly horrendous. I have, it's been so bad since I've seen a movie with such dullness, lifelessness, uninteresting aspects to it. I've like bounced around the movie. I was just like, okay, maybe if we fast forward to the, after watching about half of it, skipped about 20 minutes, maybe if we get to the end, it'll be more exciting. Nope, it's bad there too. I'm just like, wait, what is going on? This, can we get Ron Perlman and Guillermo del Toro back, please? Please? And this movie proved that no one wanted this movie because it flopped harder than any other comic book movie has ever flopped at the box office in history. It was just abysmal. And I I got this on Redbox and I still wanted my money back. This was so egregiously bad. Um, so we will finish on some positives, however, and I'll go over my top five best movies of the year. The movies that I walked away with the most happy and enjoyed the most in 2019. So number five, I will say Shazam. I had very high expectations for Shazam. I liked the casting of Zachary Levi as Shazam. Um, I really enjoyed the trailers that I saw so far. And sure enough, the movie absolutely delivered. I loved Shazam. I loved the message. It was it was a family movie at its core, which I really, really enjoyed. Not in the sense that the whole family could watch it, which they probably could, but in the sense of it's a movie about a family. And when the family unit comes together at the end, I, oh, it just made me so happy, um, even if they cut off Superman's head. But that's a whole argument for another day. I loved the humor, the charm, the characters of Shazam. It was simple, like it was essentially big with superpowers. In it was simple in its storytelling, but still very, very effective. If you feel the emotional story beats, but that gets you more invested in the action later, and you like the characters of both 
Billy Batson. And then when he becomes Shazam, you like Freddy, you like Darla. You like them all. They're really, really well done. David, director David F. Sandberg, who I already was a fan of him from some of his horror work, like Lights Out. Um, he's got a really, really cool story coming up from making YouTube short films to Shazam eventually. Um, I've always liked him, but this made me like him even more and more excited for Shazam 2 now. I really was blown away by Shazam. Shazam was the magic word in 2019 for me. Um Next up, we've got Toy Story 4. Now, I thought Toy Story 3 wrapped up perfectly. That's more or less just a unanimous statement across the board is Toy Story 3 was the perfect ending for Toy Story. We didn't need a 4. Well, we got one, and I'll never complain about getting more Toy Stories because, as I'm sure all of you know by now, Toy Story holds a very special place in my heart, and I will always support Toy Story. So I was apprehensive about Toy Story 4, but optimistic at the same time even if it took forever for this movie to be made. And at the end of the day, I absolutely love Toy Story 4. Toy Story 3, yes, it is the end of the main Toy Story stories, but Toy Story 4 kind of feels like at the end of Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows, that 19 years later piece of what happens after. It's kind of like the epilogue, like the wrapping everything up story. And I've really, really liked that a lot. Um, some of the new characters like Duke Kaboom, uh, Ducky and Bunny were really, really great. I enjoyed them. I look forward to seeing more with them and future things, I hope. Um, I just really, really enjoyed Toy Story 4. Maybe it was just like that comfort food type feeling of coming back to something familial and just something I know like the back of my own hand of when they show the clouds and they play the Toy Story music at the beginning. I was just like, this is, this is my, this is my special place. And the end saying, spoiler alert, if you didn't already know for somehow. Um, toy Woody and Buzz saying goodbye, Woody saying goodbye to the rest of the toys. It was it wasn't Toy Story Three levels of sad. That's a oh that's a whole other gut punch. But it was just so well done. I love Toy Story. I love Toy Story Four and it was a great way to end Woody's story in the Toy Story world. Um, so at number three, we have one that kind of snuck up on me. Of, I was kind of interested in it. The trailers made me somewhat interested, but I was more curious in the actors in it with Matt Damon and Christian Bale. And I'm talking, of course, about Ford v. Ferrari, which was a excellent movie. I'll bet a little bit long at times, but a excellent movie nonetheless of basically... Two guys, Carol Shelby and um, oh, I'm forgetting Christian Bale's character's name. Um, they more or less are tasked by Ford to make a car that can beat Ferrari at the Le Mans 24-hour race, um, which no American has ever done. So basically, it's like a screw the system and screw the businessman who keeps trying to ruin our vision type thing. And it was really, really well done. It was excellent. Matt Damon's performance, Christian Bale's performance, all the performances were excellent. Uh, A Quiet Place is Noah Jupe as Christian Bale's son. Really, really great. Noah Jupe is absolutely a rising star. Keep your eye on him. He was phenomenal. But I really, really enjoyed, even as someone that's not like a big racing fan, like racing cars, I still found quite a bit of enjoyment in the film. I really, really enjoyed it. Um... Yeah, if you haven't seen 4 v Ferrari, I would highly, highly recommend it. It was a very good time. 
And number two, I know a lot of people are expecting this to be my number one, but not quite. Um, my number two is Avengers Endgame. Just because this, in any other time, this would be number one because this movie relies on your 10 years of buildup. This movie isn't epic in all senses of the word. You probably could watch it without seeing any other Marvel movies, but you don't get rewarded by it nearly as much. So, like, as a film, it's just kind of okay. But as an event, it is truly something special. That last hour is one of the best hours of film that I have ever seen, just in terms of its epic scope. But in terms of an actual story, it's just kind of... It's good. It's a good chapter in an overall Marvel story that's been told. It's it's an epic more so it's an epic event more so than an individual movie. That's why it's number two and a very close number two at that. But as a move as movies go in terms of what I enjoy, just pick it out of a lineup. This is an individual standalone movie, my number one movie of the year. Ryan Johnson's Knives Out. I'm I like but don't love Last Jedi. This movie is slowly but surely making me a Ryan Johnson fan. Knives Out is incredible. So Knives Out is a murder mystery about a famed horror author or mystery author um, that is mysteriously found dead in his home. And now um, um, Benoit Blanc, played by Daniel Craig, has to solve the case of what happened, who killed um, Arlen, and why. And all of his family is there for the... Uh, funeral, so they're all suspects. It's like good old-fashioned murder mystery in the vein of Clue or Murder on the Orient Express, except this time it's good. Um, and oh my gosh, the cast is absolutely stacked. So I already said Daniel Craig, but you have uh, Christopher Plummer, Chris Evans, Ana de Armas, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, Catherine Langford, Christopher Guest, um, not Christopher Guest, um, Don Johnson. There we go. I was thinking because Don Johnson's character is married to Jimmy Lee Curtis. In, in reality, Christopher Guest is married to Jimmy Lee Curtis. But weird side tangent. Um, so many famous people. And it was so well done. It was one of those, uh, as we're watching it, Heather and I saw it in theaters. We kept leaning over to each other. Just like, I think it's this. I think it's this. Oh, wait, no. Then that means this and this. And this. Like, we were trying to play detective along with the movie. A movie gives you just enough clues that... You're following, it's like pulling on a string. It's like you keep trying to unravel something while you're watching it, but at no point do you get ahead of it, really. The movie stays one step ahead of you, and it gives you kind of like these false clues that you're just like, that's got to be something that pays off later, and it doesn't. It's a misdirect, but not like a lying to you. It's just like a magic trick of trying to deceive you or somewhere else so that you're still surprised at the end by the reveal. And... It was a well-crafted mystery, and I love a good mystery. The performances, there's not a single weak link here. Um, Daniel Craig is having the time of his life as Benoit Blanc, the detective. I've not seen him have so much fun in a role in years. Like, he's he's been phoning in in his bond, but he's having so much fun as this detective. If you do not know the name Ana de Armas, who plays um, Marta, the maid, in this movie... You will soon. She was phenomenal in this. She's the next Bond girl, speaking of Daniel Craig. Um, she was great. Jamie Lee Curtis was great. Chris Evans. 
And his first major post-Endgame role was absolutely phenomenal. He's a completely different character than Captain America, but an interesting character nonetheless. He's spreading his wings as an actor, getting out of the um, Captain America bubble. He was... I liked his character quite a bit. I love Knives Out. I cannot sing its praises enough. I cannot recommend it enough. See Knives Out is... It's a great time. Well, what do you guys think are some of the best and the worst of 2019? I love hearing from you guys. Let me know in the comments below. And as always, if you like what you hear and you want to hear more, subscribe to the channel on whatever audio platform you're listening to us on, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or YouTube. And if you haven't already, subscribe to us on the main YouTube channel at Uncharted Media. And as always, stay sharp, movie guys and gals.